welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. The Joyful Christian Nationalist, How Stephen Leacock Loved His Home by Resisting the World. The third talk from a mini-conference on humorous literature by Matt Carpenter. title for this is The Joyful Christian Nationalist, How Stephen Leacock Loved His Home by Resisting the World. It is with admitted mischief that I chose this title for a lecture. One of the dangers of such a title is that I could spend all of our time just defining terms, namely, what's a Christian nationalist, and then Who is Stephen Leacock? Let's take first things first. One can find multiple definitions for Christian nationalism. The term has come into prominence recently with some authors pointing out the goodness and benefits of it, others the dangers of it, and some, a third group, merely reporting its recent ascendance. In the last few months, internet searches spiked significantly. Traditionally, the term nationalism means dedication to one's nation over and above other loyalties. Nationalism rose in Europe in the mid-1800s and is viewed by most historians as one of the causes of World War I. To add the word Christian to that is somewhat odd, given that nationalism was largely considered a secular movement in its origination, and the United States excuse me, secular movement in Europe, and the United States was much more dedicated to local state loyalty, as in the 50 states, than to the country as a whole, at least until the late 1800s. Many in conservative Christian circles use it as shorthand, use the term Christian nationalism as shorthand as, uh, for a country with overt Christian loyalty. Again, That's odd for us in the States, considering the First Amendment forbids religious tests at the federal level. We may not have an established religious church. I'm not here decrying the origins, the Christian origins of the first colonists, or their desire to establish a godly commonwealth, but pointing out that once we were established as a separate country, we went out of our way to escape national religious branding. Britain and her commonwealths, on the other hand, are another matter. No one could watch the recent funeral of Queen Elizabeth and escape the overtly Christian nature surrounding her life and death. This was not just the funeral, but the lead up to it. The liturgy awash with scripture reading and prayer, the symbols, all of which point to England's Christian heritage, and then there was the sermon preached by Archbishop Justin Welby. It was probably now, based on estimates, the largest single gospel proclamation ever watched in world history. at estimated a little over 4 billion people. Despite 
the rampant secularism of Britain. The remaining symbolism in their government is inescapable. Sadly, many view that funeral as one of the last displays of Christianity in the Commonwealth. The fact is, we don't know. Secularism has been an ongoing process in the West. The last public leader to refer to the West as Christendom was Winston Churchill. And since that time, the term has receded, the term Christendom has receded more and more. Yet there are still people working to revive and conserve the vestiges of public Christian virtue that remain. One of those also happened to be the greatest Canadian humorist of all time. His name, Stephen Leacock. Born in England in 1869, Leacock's father moved the family to Ontario, where they bought a farm. He attended college in Toronto and later taught while supporting his family back home. He felt much more at home in the Tory, or we would say conservative, party, and greater affinity towards smaller, rural, decentralized governments than large, liberal ones. He pursued a Ph.D. in economics at the University of Chicago, but his education there was more than academic. He saw the way factory workers and the poor were treated by big business and the local government. To him, this was appalling. He was concerned with the growing trend among Canadians to join with the U.S. as a republic rather than remain loyal and separate from the British crown. His first book, Elements of Political Science and later The Unsolved Riddle of Social Justice, do not smack of anything humorous but they were aimed at the problems of American-style capitalism, one that inherently, at the time, pushed business into the role of governing and works closely with central governments to maximize profit while minimizing responsibility for resulting problems. His belief was based largely on the Tory Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, whose quote, or this One Nation, that's, that's the title of it, uh, One Nation Conservatism established limits on the all-encompassing growth of business into the everyday lives of the public. Leacock desired for Canada to remain free from the secularizing business-first model of the United States and pursue conservatism that would, that would protect Canada's interest rather than handing her well-being to the colonizing influence of England or the United States. Thus far, you've heard me talk a lot more about politics and economics and nothing about humor. This is where Stephen Leacock stands above all other political activists. While he delivered speeches he taught at the University of McGill in Toronto and campaigned to preserve the heart and soul of Canada. He was putting his vision in writing. In 1911, Leacock published his third book of fiction entitled Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town. 
His previous two fiction works, Nonsense Novels and Literary Lapses, were compiled collections of short stories based on various places throughout Canada. Sunshine Sketches is based in the fictional town of Mariposa. It depicts life in a small, imperfect, but lovely town of central Canada. Neither, excuse me, neither overly romantic nor cynical, Mariposa is a place where love of the land, local culture, and neighborly virtue abounds. He introduces it this way, quote, Mariposa is not a real town. On the contrary, it is about 70 or 80 of them. You may find them all the way from Lake Superior to the sea, with the same square streets and the same maple trees and the same churches and hotels. The inspiration of the book, a land of hope and sunshine where little towns spread their square streets and their trim maple trees beside placid lakes, almost within echo of the primeval forest, is large enough. If it fails in its portrayal of the scenes and the country that, depicts the, that, that it depicts, the fault lies rather with an art that is deficient than in an affection that is wanting. Leacock loved the places about which he was writing, and particularly his home of Orilla, Ontario. Sunshine Sketches was originally published in a magazine, and he had to be sure because some of the characters were so closely associated with men and women he actually knew in Orilla that he had, to he had forgotten to change some of the names. So he had to go back before they were published in the paper and change the names to make sure that no one would directly equate it, although it was a standing joke in the place. Everyone knew who he was talking about, and they loved him still, which tells you that his depictions were not intended to harm or to scorn, but they were born from love. One character is Jefferson Thorpe, the barber and aspiring philanthropist who speculated in mining stock. He became rich in this sto story, lost it all, and quietly went back to being a barber, to the delight of all the men in Mariposa. Incidentally, his description of the way Mr. Thorpe would shave men. That's back when you could, you could get a shave at the barber shop. He would say that a shave was not merely getting the whiskers cut. It was an experience of revelry. Just a wonderful picture of the delights of men being together and the barber shaving. There's also old Dr. Gallagher, who collects Indian relics and studies Canadian history. And who can forget the kindly Reverend Drone, the vicar of the local Anglican parish, uh, the parish church. Reverend Drone fulfilled his duties well. He would fish and read Greek when he could. He would also he would amuse the children by making kites and steamboats for them because Reverend Drone loved machines, 
But not just any machines. He loved making machines and, and, and understanding how they worked. And sometimes even with the kites, there's one story where he, he made kites for this young girl who was sick and then took it, took it over to her house. And because she could not fly the kite, he flew it for her, which he actually enjoyed doing there with her. Quote, it was fortunate for the dean that he had the strange interest and aptitude for mechanical devices which he possessed, or otherwise this kind of thing would have been too cruel an imposition. But Reverend Mr. Drone had a curious liking for machinery. I think I never heard him preach a better sermon than the one on airplanes. The title, Lo, What You Now See, in the, in, what you now see on High, from Jeremiah 2. He goes on to tell in three chapters the story of Reverend Drone, whose church building is under a mountain of debt. One of the great quotes from that, uh, one of those chapters, quote, It was only when the agent of the building society and the representative of the Hosanna Pipe and Steam Organ Company Limited used to call for quarterly payments that he, would, he was suddenly reminded of the fact, that is of their debt, Always, after these men came round, the dean used to preach a special sermon on sin, and in the course of which he would mention that the ancient Hebrews used to put unjust traitors to death, a thing of which he spoke with Christian serenity. They go on to great lengths, the church and the community go on to great lengths to overcome the debt, only to fail. In the final chapter uh, that emphasizes Reverend Drone, about the church, and that chapter is called Beacon on a Hill, when all seems lost and the dean is about to resign. He's been the pastor for 40 years, and he's about to resign. The miraculous happens. It's reminiscent of Chesterton in how all is restored for the church. The description of Reverend Drone and most of the other local characters in Mariposa, Mariposa is kindly, lightly satirical, but most of all, loving. This is because Leacock based the characters on real people, he knew. There is no attempt at distancing oneself from the common folk. These were his people, and he loved them. He wanted to protect them from the encroaching liberalism and modernism that wrecked communal life. Leacock was not defending just a random ideal. He was defending his home. When the author loves specific people in a specific place. The story transcends its provincial setting and becomes timeless. It's the same reason Wendell Berry's fictional fiction based around Port Royal, Kentucky remains. Both authors love the people about whom they're writing. Love for Orilla and for Ontario is what moved Stephen Leacock to war against the twin dragons of liberal capitalism and brute socialism. Now I've talked about capitalism, I know. He was aware of the encroaching socialism that also was trying to make its way over, but at his time most of the politicians were saying the goal for Canada should be to make everyone free, and by free they, they meant giving business, bringing businesses into all small towns and providing them with as many choices as possible for as many products as possible. 
He was concerned about the philosophy that viewed that as its end. The counterpart to Mariposa was published three years later in 1914, and it is entitled Arcadian Adventures of the Idle Rich. Based on the fictional American city of Plutoria, a Chicago-like place, we see what happens when making money and achieving status becomes the all-consuming concern of a place. It's not that Leacock simplistically decries cities and exalts small towns. His gentle satire is reserved for those who make rugged individualism and materialism their calling cards. Just as when people seek the good of their neighbors together, whether it's a small town or a large, larger city, good results come. When people seek their individual wealth for its own sake, the size of their residence matters little. We commonly see this more often in cities, though, because there's greater opportunity in cities to achieve wealth and status than there is in small villages and towns. Even the very end of the show many people love, The Andy Griffith Show, what happens? Do you remember what happened at the very end? When they shifted from The Andy Griffith Show to the, its subsequent uh, spinoff, Mayberry RFD, you have Sheriff Taylor leaving, moving out of Mayberry to take another opportunity in a larger place. Thankfully, in the final made-for-TV movie, though, he returned to Mayberry to again take the role of sheriff. Back to, the, though, the city of Plutoria. In the colorfully titled chapter, The Yahi Bahi Oriental Society of Mrs. Russell Your Brown, if that title does not itself grab you, I can't probably inspire much more. But I'll try. Here's one, one section from it. It's, uh, it begins this way. Mrs. Russell Your Brown lived on Plutoria Avenue in a vast sandstone palace in which she held those fashionable entertainments which have made the name of Russell Your Brown what it is. Mr. Russell Your Brown lived there also. In other words, Mr. Russell Your Brown was a severe handicap to Mrs. Russell Your Brown. It was more than that. The word isn't strong enough. He was, as Mrs. Russell Your Brown herself confessed to her confidential circle of 300 friends, he was a drag. Even in the early years of their married life, some 20 or 25 years ago, her husband had been a drag on her by being in the coal and wood business. It is hard for a woman to have to, have to realize that her husband is making a fortune out of coal and wood and that people have to know it. It ties one down. There's nothing more stifling than a husband who doesn't know a Giotto from a Carlo Dolce, but who can distinguish nut coal from egg and is never asked to dinner without talking about the furnace." End quote. The story goes on with Mr. Excuse me, Mrs. Russell Your Brown trying to inject a degree of oriental culture into her confidential group of 300. And let us say that the results are more than well deserved. Leacock was all his life a faithful Anglican. 
but he had little use for religious pretension. Plutorius Presbyterians and Episcopalians receive due skewering. We pick up in one passage on the romantic intentions of Mr. Peter Spillikins. Quote, Later on, when Spillikins went into business and into society, the same fate pursued him. He loved, for at least six months, Georgiana McTeague, the niece of the Presbyterian minister at St. Osoph's. He loved her so well that for her sake he temporarily abandoned his pew at St. Asaph's, which, is, which was Episcopalian, and listened to 14 consecutive sermons on hell. <laughs> but the affair got no further than that. Once or twice, indeed, Spillikins walked home with Georgiana from church and talked about hell with her. Once her uncle asked him to into the manse for cold supper after evening service, and they had a long talk about hell all through the meal and upstairs in the sitting room afterward. But somehow, Spillikins could get no further with it. He read up all he could about hell so as to be able to talk to Georgiana. But in the end, it all failed. A young minister, fresh from college, came and preached at St. Osoph six special sermons on the absolute certainty of eternal punishment and married Miss McTeague as a result of it. <laughs> what he does to, to, to the religious groups is one of my favorite things, frankly, about this. Maybe because I, I can relate somewhat. Leacock presents us with a contrast also of two ministers. Reverend Furlong, the Episcopalian, priest, and Dr. Dr. McTeague, the aforementioned Presbyterian rector. The Reverend Edward Fairforth Furlong of St. Asaph's, this is a, beginning a quote now, the Reverend Edward Fairforth Furlong of St. Asaph's was a man who threw his whole energy into his parish work. The subtleties of theological controversy he left to minds less active than his own. His creed was one of works rather than words, and whatever he did, he did it with his whole heart. Whether he was lunching at the mausoleum club with one of his church wardens or playing the flute, which he played as only the, the Episcopal clergy can play it, accompanied on the harp by one of the fairish ladies in his choir, or whether he was dancing the new Episcopal tango with the younger daughters of his elder parishioners, he threw himself into it with all his might. He could drink tea more gracefully and play tennis better than any clergyman on this side of the Atlantic. He could stand beside the white stone font of St. Asaph's in his long white surplice holding a white-robed infant worth half a million dollars, looking as beautifully innocent as the child itself, and drawing from every matron of the congregation with unmarried daughters the despairing cry, What a pity that he has no children of his own. End quote. We're, later, we're told later that no man, this is a quote, no man could preach shorter sermons or explain away the book of Genesis more agreeably than Reverend Furlong. <laughs> it's important here to note that Leacock viewed, and there was a, a definite distinction between the Episcopalians in the United States and the Anglicans in the Church of England and even the Church of Canada. The Episcopalians in the U.S. still to this day are viewed as the most far-out liberal group in that denomination in the world. 
even by our British counterparts. The Church of England makes fun of the American Episcopalians as being liberal, if that tells you anything. So that's why you see this distinction. Leacock, a conservative Anglican, is making fun of the American Episcopalians. That line about playing the flute is only an Episcopal rector can just still grabs me. <laughs> anyway, Dr. McTeague is another matter. Presbyterian pastor and honorary professor of philosophy at Plutoria University. At one point, the university president wants him to leave, but he won't. So the trustees of the university cut his salary in half. He still won't hear of leaving. We pick up now with a quote. Then, to the surprise of everybody, he refused. This is after he took his role as the pastor of the Presbyterian Church. He refused to give up his lectures in philosophy. He said he felt a call to give them. The salary, he said, was of no consequence. He wrote to Mr. Furlong Sr., the father of the Episcopal Rector and Honorary Treasurer of, the, of Plutoria University, and stated that he proposed to give his lectures for nothing. The trustees of the college protested. While fully admitting Dr. McTeague's lectures were well worth giving for nothing, <laughs> they begged him to reconsider this, his offer. But he refused, and from that day on, in spite of all offers, that he should retire on double his salary, that he should visit the Holy Land, or Syria, or Armenia, where there were there dreadful massacres of Christians taking place. <laughs> Dr. McTeague clung to his post with a tenacity worth of the best traditions of Scotland. His only internal perplexity was that he didn't see how, when the time came for him to die 20 or 30 years hence, they would ever be able to replace him. <laughs> Another unique element of Arcadian adventures is the consistent mentioning, though, of the poorer, less stable parts of town. Plutoria has these parts, and they are mentioned consistently. The wealth that abounds in Plutoria just never makes it to those places who actually need anything. Stephen Leacock continued writing well past 1914. Likewise, he continued to support candidates for office while teaching political economy, or what we today call economics, at McGill University until his forced retirement in 1936. He actually wrote an essay about that forced retirement in 1936. That's pretty good. Most of his, a lot of his works you can find online for free. For the next eight years, he continued to write and speak on behalf of his beloved Ontario and for Canada as a nation. Undergirding his work was not a desire to restore a previous version of Canada, but preserve the gifts God had given, the best traditions of the past, the communities in which we live, the surrounding creation, and the dignity of man. Ronald Dart, a modern professor today, summarizes Leacock this way, quote, He stood very much within such a large and organic view of life, a view and vision in which the life of religion, education, culture, and politics were all organically connected and integrated. It is in this sense that Leacock is very much a Tory of the older way, a Tory who, not only, who only too keenly realized that his Anglican faith was about being engaged in a nationalist way on political issues, 
but also being deeply concerned about preserving and protecting the classical way of humanist, that is Christian humanist, education. Leacock died in 1944 with the world enmeshed in a war that appeared far from over. Yet in his final books and essays, he, mind, he reminds readers of their responsibilities to love their neighbors, delight in the gifts of life, and work to preserve what they can. Even on his deathbed, he remained hopeful in a world that had lost much of its sense and its hope. In addition to the need to laugh, there are several lessons we can also learn from Stephen Leacock. First of all, humor must be humane. Leacock didn't give Mariposa a pass in her foibles. He pointed them out with grace and clarity. At the same time, there is no hint of bitterness or derision in his treatment of Plutoria. There are multiple problems, and the general philosophy, that is materialism, is wrong. But he never forgets that he, was that he is writing about people. They were human beings, God's fallen creatures who have chosen the wrong path. One can detect notes of sympathy in his treatment of the people. The same can be said when you read his reactions towards the lower classes. He doesn't despise them in spite of their poor choices and habits. Neither did he exonerate them simply because they were poor. This man, who saw the destruction caused by world leaders and their lust for domination, one of his essays, by the way, entitled, How Soon Can We Start the Next War? Uh, makes some really good points on this, before, written before World War II. I would add, didn't allow his view, didn't allow his biblical view of original sin to overcome his love for his neighbors. Another way to say it is this, you must first love what you correct and whom you correct. It is easy for us to take our lessons from the enemy, biting and devouring those we oppose using our tongue like rusty saws. But borrowing from Chesterton, quote, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. Number two, the health of the church should lead to the health of the community. Leacock's Anglicanism was no more apparent than at this point. In Britain and her commonwealths, the establishment of the church isn't just a national connection. It's a local connection. Each community or parish has at least one church that is responsible for all the people. The church isn't a standalone voluntary organization, but the conscience of society. This demands that the members of the church serve in the community working towards its general health, as you see in a place like Mariposa at its best. Tories like Leacock saw the reduction of churches to private religious service clubs like that of a doctor who removes the heart of, the, of a smoking patient in order to protect the purity of the heart. While we would not certainly in our country bring back established churches anytime soon, 
we should change our attitude about the church in society. Rather than fearing that the church will be contaminated by the world, we should embrace the Augustinian view that the church should play an organic role in the world she inhabits, particularly the community which she inhabits. Number three, we learn from Leacock to love the people and places God has given you. You can't read Stephen Leacock without seeing he loved Canada. Neither his humor nor his serious writings are dedicated to general abstract principles, but to the needs of the people of Orilla, of McGill University, of Ontario, and even of, of the larger Canada. He was criticized at times for his antipathy towards the United States. He did not hate the U.S. He did not want Canada to become the U.S. He did not appreciate the attempts to draw Canada closer in bonds with America, bonds he believed in time would lock his people into the sludge of secular materialism. He was also criticized for his caution about looking to Britain to help. He didn't want to give too much power even to the national government of Canada, preferring the principle of subsidiarity, taking care of problems at the lowest possible level. He was able to resist the encroachment of the world because he loved his home and the people who inhabited it. His, love, his loves were not ideological, but local. He's the opposite of Linus Van Pelt in the Peanuts cartoon when Linus said, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. <laughs> Stephen Leacock didn't give a fig for mankind, but he loved the people who surrounded him. The world today remembers little of Stephen Leacock. The man who was at one time better known than the country of Canada has faded from memory. But this humane Christian knight who pursued the good of his people has works that will follow him, as they will for all of us who die faithful to Christ. May we all love our neighbors as joyfully as he did and face the world with confidence, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.